says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding and that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we ask as we continue now to worship that you would just help us by the power and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to have a heart that is good and fertile soil to be able to receive the good seed of your word to be deposited down within that it might bear good fruit in each of our lives. And you know what that means for each one of us, Lord. So give us all that ear to hear what your spirit would want to say to this part of your church that's assembled this morning as we open the word of God together. Bless your word. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit be our interpreter, our teacher, and the one who speaks to our hearts And we pray this expectantly, believing you will in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. You know, what do you think perhaps may be one of the most effective forms of ministry or assistance or help that we as believers can render or give to a fellow Christian? I think certainly one thing should come to mind is it's always helpful If we offer some instruction, maybe some counsel in regards to what the word of God says or what God's will is for our life. And Paul does that in this letter. He's writing a letter to these Colossian believers to talk to them about the will of God, to give them spiritual instruction. But I think as well, just as important it is that we also, if we're going to help people, pray and ask for God's involvement to be taking place in people's lives. It's one thing to instruct people about God's will. It's a whole other thing of value to actually ask for God to be involved in people's lives by the power of His Spirit working in their lives and helping them come into an experience of what the will of God actually is for them. And that's what we see Paul doing next here, referring in verse 9 and onward here to these Christians how he was actually praying for them. And he tells them, as he began to say last week that he prayed for them always, he's telling them what he actually was praying for them about and what he was asking for God to do in their lives. And from it, I think we see a great biblical pattern that we can utilize as God's people how to pray for one another. And we should be praying for one another. This is a great pattern this morning, if you're married, for how you can pray for your spouse This is a great pattern if you're a parent this morning and you uh, have children that you want to see walk with the Lord and grow in their relationship with the Lord, how you can utilize this model to pray for your children's spiritual maturity and for their progression 
in the faith once they come to know Jesus Christ. It's a great pattern just generally for all of us to pray for fellow believers and our spiritual leaders and those that we know that follow the Lord. And I say that because if you've ever thought or maybe even said, well, I just, I don't, I don't really engage in prayer that much or I don't go to prayer meetings because I, I just don't know how to pray for people. I don't know what to say or what to ask. Well, listen, your excuses are all gone now. Because here the Bible is going to set before you a perfect model, an example of exactly one of the ways that you can pray. The Bible is actually filled, if you go through it, with references and examples of prayer that we can utilize to learn how to pray for people. We have examples that are given to us, and here is one such passage of an example of what we can pray and how we can pray to pray effectively. Remember the background, Paul, as he opened the letter we saw last time, began to express how he was just rejoicing over all the good things that God was doing in the lives of these Colossian believers there. And he mentioned how he heard everything that was happening and he expressed how he and Timothy and others were so thankful for what they heard that God was doing among their lives. And he said, ever since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints there. And ever since we've heard, he said, of, of the hope that you have for heaven that's impacting the way you're living your lives and keeping your faith in Christ. And, and ever since we've heard of the powerful effect, he said, of the gospel that's changed your lives there and that is bringing such great fruit among your lives as it is in all the world Paul says this spirit of thankfulness is actually one of the things he then goes on to say, verse 9, look what he says, for this reason, the idea there is reflecting back to the prior verses, for this reason also, since the day we heard of these things, we do not cease to pray for you. So notice Paul indicates it was because he heard of the powerful work that God was already doing in their lives that their faith was in Christ, that they were loving one another and being changed and transformed, that they were bearing fruit in their spiritual experience. Paul tells us here that he therefore found reason to constantly pray for them. When he says, for this reason, as I said, he's referring basically to what he just said, and that's this. He's saying, for this reason, because we've heard how well you are doing spiritually, that's the reason, he says, because you're doing so well spiritually that we don't cease to pray for you. Now, I find that insightful. Paul says, because you're doing so well, that's why we don't cease praying for you. That's why we don't cease to ask that God would keep doing great things in your life. Interesting to consider, as Paul refers to the basis of his ministry of prayer for these believers, that it's not because they're doing bad spiritually. He says, he's not saying here, we don't cease praying for you because we hear you're struggling with sin there and we hear that nobody reads their Bible and nobody's going to church and nobody's witnessing and people are backsliding. And he says, we're actually compelled to not cease in praying for you constantly because we hear how good you're doing spiritually. And we want to see that continue. We want to see you progress spiritually and develop spiritually and, and actually not go backwards spiritually. So we labor in prayer at the work that God's doing would just progress and develop. And often I look at this passage here and I think to myself, what a contrast for the reason and motivation we often need in our lives to pray for one another. Typically, if we were to be very honest with ourselves, often our motivation and purpose for praying for fellow believers 
is usually when there's a problem going on. Maybe they're having a problem circumstantially and so that compels us to really pray because we heard some problem or hardship or trials going on. Or maybe we are compelled to pray for someone because they're having a problem spiritually. Maybe they are struggling with sin or they're in a relationship they shouldn't be in or they're not attending church anymore. You, you can tell they're having a struggle spiritually. And so that's what motivates us to unceasingly just really pray and intercede because we're thinking like the James 5 thing, Lord, they've turned away and, and we're praying, Lord, turn them back. And so that's what compels us to pray. But we see here in the Bible that though it usually takes us having something wrong to pray for someone paul says it's actually quite the opposite for me paul says i don't need something wrong to pray for people paul says i find reason and purpose to pray for people when they're doing well because they're probably the ones actually if you think of it that the devil is going to be attacking the most because the devil wants to ensnare them and the devil sees someone making progress and so the devil says hey we need to redirect our efforts over here because that church is doing well or these Christians are actually evangelizing or, or walking in the spirit. So the, the devil's going to turn his efforts. So Paul says, we don't cease to pray because we hear how God's working among you. And we want to see that spiritual work continue. And what you have here in verse 9 through verse 14 is Paul is basically showing us his prayer for them was basically a prayer for spiritual maturity. That's what this prayer is for. He's saying we're praying for you to have a fruitful Christian life, that you would mature spiritually. And I think what a great example as we look at it together this morning, that we should not only pray, as I said, for people when they struggle. We should always be praying for one another. The tragedy is that sometimes we even say we're going to pray for people when they struggle and, and, and we talk about when people struggle and then we, we don't even sometimes as Christians have the faithfulness to actually labor in prayer for them then. How much more do we really need to be intentional to say, hey, that person's doing well. I'm going to pray they keep growing. I'm going to pray my kids keep maturing spiritually and that my spouse keeps walking faithfully. That, that should be what compels us to pray above all else, first and foremost. And not that there's anything wrong. Listen, nothing wrong with praying for practical needs and material things. Jesus said that we can pray, give us this day our daily bread. Nothing unspiritual wrong to pray for practical needs. But I would say this, take notice throughout the Bible that when God gives to us records of prayers, that so often the major and more primary focus of biblical prayers is usually for the spiritual condition of people's lives. You'll notice in this prayer, it's nothing to do with their circumstantial needs or situations. It's all about their spiritual health, their spiritual development. And most biblical prayers usually aren't God take away the trial, God do this, God change. It's, it's God work in that person's heart work in their soul, work in their life because God sees the eternal as so much more of greater value than the temporal. So let's look at this prayer uh, reference Paul makes for spiritual maturity. See what Paul was asking and we can learn from it then to help assist us in our prayer lives. Paul says, first of all, that when we pray, verse 9, for you, first thing he mentions is verse 9, we ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. He says, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul was asking, we see first, that God would bring believers into a deeper awareness, a fuller awareness of his plan for their lives. Paul says, one of the things we're asking is that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for your life. 
That word filled, when you look at it, the Greek term that's used, palermo, is literally a term that speaks of to be filled to capacity to where something begins to overflow. And what Paul is saying is we are praying that you would come to the fullest capacity possible to understand and be aware of what his will is for your life. Now, when the Bible refers to his will, God's will, it's a reference to what is God's plan? What's God's desire? What has God chosen and what does God want? That's what God's will is. God's will is God's decision regarding every matter of life. God's preference, what God wants in every given circumstance, morally, spiritually, every matter of faith and practice. And we could say, when we talk about God's will, that you could kind of break it into almost two categories in a broad sense. For example, first of all, God's will, you could say there is God's general will or God's universal will. That is what is general and universal for all people. Uh, There are those general universal things. It is, the Bible tells us, not God's will that any should perish. That God desires all men to be saved and all to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, that's universal. That's general. That's for everybody. God desires generally for everybody to get saved. And then as Christians, there's the universal general will of God. That is, those things that as Christians we know biblically are things that are God's will for all of us Generally, it doesn't matter whether you're 13 or 30, whether you're a male or you're a female, whether you're a Christian in America or a Christian in Africa. These are generally universally things that are God's will for all of us as Christians. And as we look into the word of God, we might say that is what we would call the revealed will of God. That is the general universal will of God. His revealed will are the things clearly specified, directly declared in the word of God itself. That God's word has given us instructions. The spirit of God has given us truths and and, and declarations and commands. And God has declared his will for us right here in the word of God. People say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I can't figure out God's will is for my life. I say, look, I'm still trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. It's a pretty big book. We can always know God's will for our life generally, universally, and and, and this is God's will for our life. The commands, the instructions, the declarations of his word, what God's decision is about this matter morally or this issue circumstantially or how to handle a situation relationally, what a husband is to be, what a wife is to be, what our roles are, what we're to be doing as Christians, what we're not to be doing as Christians as followers of Christ. God's word is the clearest revelation of God's will. We do have the revealed will of God in the word of God given to us so that we can live in accordance with what God has chosen and wants. So the best way to have a full knowledge of his will is what? To have a fuller knowledge of his word. And so as we come into a fuller knowledge of his word, we then come into a fuller knowledge of his will to understand what God's will is generally. Now, in a secondary sense, another category of his will, you could say there's his general will. And then basically you could also say there's God's personal will. That is the specific will of God in personal, unique ways for your life. The the unique purpose and plan that God has for your individual life, God has a specific purpose intended for each person. We could say that is what we might call the unrevealed will of God. 
That's what we're always struggling over as Christians. In fact, so many times as Christians, I think one of the greatest mistakes we, we make is we're so concerned, stressing and worrying and trying to figure out the unrevealed will of God. Half the time we're ignoring the revealed will of God, which is very clearly written in his word. I found this. Let me just say this. And I believe it's true. It's been my personal experience. And I, I, I see this in a lot. If we make a more concerted effort to obey the revealed will of God, the unrevealed will of God will come to us a lot more easily. It will be a lot more evident because you'll be walking in the light. And when you walk in the light, things aren't as dark and you can see more clearly. And it makes more sense. Oh, in regards to my personal life or the unrevealed will of God, because I'm walking light, I can see, oh, there's the next exit ramp I'm supposed to take. Or there's the next turn I'm supposed to be. So the other aspect of God's will is this area of his personal will for each individual life. And that we discover as we just walk in relationship with the Lord. And that's different for every one of us in this room. God has a unique thumbprint, a unique personalized plan in store for your life journey. It's an individual blueprint. It's, it's when he knit you together in your mother's womb, he had that blueprint laid out for your life. The exact number of days and what your days on earth were supposed to be according to who you are personally. And what choices you would make and the temperament and gifts and talents and all of who you are. God has a unique personal plan, which is wonderful to think about, for your life and what he wants to do through your life. He has a journey that you are to take to certain destinations and a specific, even I believe, intention of what roads you would take on that journey. And what people you would intersect with that would be a part of your journey, who you would meet or who you would marry and, and what God would have you to do occupationally and how you're to serve him. And God has this wonderful thing, which is so beautiful that, that he hasn't made us and we're not intended to be like these cookie cutter Christians. Yes, the general will of God, that's cookie cutter. That doesn't change. You don't get to change that. But we're not intended to have these cookie cutter you know, exact same experiences as every other Christian. Well, this is how God worked in that Christian's life. Right. Doesn't mean that's how God's going to work in your life. And that's okay. What's God calling you to do? How's he leading you? What's he leading you to do? It may be different than what he's leading this brother in Christ to do or how he works in that sister's life. The Lord has a unique plan and a customized roadmap that you're to live out. And that's what makes the Christian life exciting. That you walk with the Lord and as you walk with the Lord, he reveals these things of his personal will and plans. And how does one arrive at the knowledge of God's will? Is it all dependent upon us understanding and figuring it out through intellectual research and grasping things? Well, no, he says, look what the help God provides. Verse nine, he says, may you come to the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What that's referring to is as we seek the Lord personally, as we walk with him closely day by day, letting him lead and guide our steps, the wonderful thing is that God grants us supernaturally revelation by his spirit that gives us an understanding spiritually to be able to perceive, to discern something beyond the five senses of our touch and our taste and our smell, that, there, that there's another level of sense. There's a spiritual sense of discernment that we can have spiritual wisdom and understanding to discern. This is what I think God's will is for my life. 
This is what I believe the Lord is leading in my life. And we can grasp that personal leading and God imparts spiritual wisdom. What we couldn't discover on own, he gives us spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we can become aware of what his will is for our life. So ask him for that for yourself. And as you pray for other people, pray and ask. What a wonderful thing to pray. Lord, give them an awareness of your will. Lord, give them an awareness of your will for their life. Because listen, there's no better thing to do than to be what God wants you to be. Paul said, remember, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And nothing better than to know what you are by the will of God that you might walk in that faithfully and God use you to the capacities that he wants to. So Paul prayed that he have an awareness of God's will. Next, he goes on in verse 10 to also pray without ceasing. He says, we pray that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing him so there he's asking that god would help them to live in a manner that was in accordance with the relationship that they had entered into with the lord that they'd honor and obey the lord jesus he says and walk worthy of the lord the idea of walking worthy of the lord means to walk in a manner that is consistent with the calling they had received to follow jesus christ as their Lord to properly represent the Lord Jesus, to honor his lordship according to that way of conducting ourselves, where he is Lord and we are follower. Now it is interesting. You notice the Bible when it often speaks of the Christian life uses metaphors and here the Christian life as in many places is pictured as a walk. He says that you may walk as a Christian. Your walk would be worthy of the Lord. And what does the word walk imply? It implies, first of all, forward motion. Forward motion. Spiritual life is supposed to be a walk. Your spiritual life is never supposed to be status quo or plateau. If you think, oh, I mean, I I did that stuff, man. I mean, I used to, and I talk to Christians, I used to, and this other church, we used to, and when I was first saved, I used to, listen, get out of used to. What are you doing? What are you doing now? You're supposed to be walking, not standing, reflecting. Oh, I remember the good old days spiritually. No, no, listen, we're supposed to be walking. If ever we stood still, we're not walking with the Lord. We're to be walking with Jesus. A walk is forward progress. It may be at a different pace and different steps, but we are to be always walking, going forward continuously taking steps, making progress. And, and walking implies you're also going a certain direction. You're supposed to be going in the right direction. Remember, oftentimes when Jesus would call people into a relationship, he would use two words. He would say what? Follow me. Follow me. That's a picture, a description that the Christian life is a decision to follow Jesus Christ as our leader and our Lord. And as we walk worthy of the Lord, that means we walk with the Lord, letting him direct our steps. I let him decide what direction I'm going because I'm following him and he's the Lord. And so to walk worthy of that, I let him determine the directions and I walk in accordance with the one I've been given this privilege to follow. When we decided, as we did at some point in our life, to accept Jesus as the savior of our sin and to embrace him as the Lord of our life, In essence, we were conveying by putting our faith and trust in him that we wanted him to save us and spare us from our sin and the penalty it deserves, but also that we were willing to let him take control of our life. That is what the word Lord means. We should never forget that. 
The word Lord implies rulership. It means that we surrendered to Jesus Christ. Our rights, our decision of what way we would walk or wouldn't walk. We came to Jesus and if we confessed him as Lord, then, then we were implying that Jesus, you will now rule my life. You will now lead me and I will follow you in all things. So Paul was asking that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, of the Lordship of Jesus, honoring his Lordship, recognizing, respecting his Lordship over their lives. And what does walking worthy of the Lord look like practically as, as you, you, you live it out? Well, he answers right there biblically in verse 10. He says, fully pleasing him. Well, what does it look like to honor the Lordship of Jesus? Well, the Bible answers for you. To live a life fully pleasing to Jesus. To seek to be pleasing to Jesus in whatever steps we take, in whatever direction we head. Our chief desire is to please the Lord. Our concerns, our decisions, our conduct, that we are always funneling that through really one simple filter, and that's this. Is this pleasing to the Lord? Is, is me saying this going to be pleasing to the Lord? Is me doing this going to be pleasing to the Lord? Is me... Stepping into this or going that direction or getting involved in that, is that pleasing to the Lord? Living fully pleasing to Him. That should be our concern, which also implies this, not pleasing ourselves. When I am pleasing myself, I'm usually typically not pleasing the Lord because in a sense, I'm enthroning myself over the Lord. My life is not my own, the Bible says. To whatever degree I seek to do what pleases myself, and, and right, that's the struggle in the Christian life. At least it isn't mine. Is every day I get up and I find there's a Judas within here. And the Judas within is saying, I think I'd like to betray the one who's supposed to be on the throne and, and please yourself. Say what you want to say. Do what you want to do. Satisfy. And, and there's that, that battle of constantly dethroning ourselves and saying, I'm not to be pleasing myself. I'm to live fully pleasing to the Lord. And it also means, listen, as a Christian, we're not to be, per se, pleasing others because of the pressure they want to put on us for this or you should do that or you have to do this or peer pressure or pressure from unsaved people. No, it's not about pleasing others. It, it's what's pleasing to the Lord in this situation. What's pleasing to the Lord in this situation? Ephesians 1, Paul said, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. As Christians, we've received a high calling, a sacred calling. We've been drafted into the Lord's army. We have been invited into the eternal family of God. That's a high calling. In the same way as a parent, you know, I was a young man, part of a few brothers, and, and there was a, a, a concept, listen, you, you bear our family's name. I don't want to see it in the newspaper saying something. You represent our name. That last name, you need to live according to that name. And in the same way, we call ourselves Christians. We tell people we're Christians. That's a high calling. We want to seek to live Christ-like and pleasing to Jesus. It's important we recognize and honor our commission and remember it's about pleasing Jesus today. Great way to take inventory for your own life. Right now, are, are, are you walking worthy of the Lord? Have you been seeking recently to really focus on fully pleasing Him? That's what the heart of God is. And when we pray for one another, 
What a great way to be praying for our spouse or our children or, or, or our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help them. Help them in school. Help them to walk worthy of you, Lord, to fully please you and not their peers. Lord, help my husband as he's in the work world and faced with such carnality and a bombardment of, you know, just uh, the unsafe. Lord, help him to walk worthy of you, to fully please you and not to bow to pressures or other things. And what a wonderful way to be able to just intercede and pray very fruitfully for one another. Thirdly, Paul also prayed, we see in verse 10, that they would also be fruitful in every good Work. The idea is that they'd be effective and productive when they did serve the Lord and work for him. Fruitful in every good work. Again, we know biblically that we're not saved by works. But that being said, as Christians, we also know the Bible teaches that we are saved for good works. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we are saved, Ephesians 2 says, for good works. That is to be used by the Lord as his instruments to go forth as Jesus did and do good things. To serve people, to help people, to love and, and care for people. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, there's that exciting verse I said earlier about the personal will of God, that when God was saving you, he had two things in mind. One, his first and foremost design was, I want to spare Tony from hell, and I want to make sure that when his life is over, he's going to be here in heaven with me. But God didn't save me and then put me to death and get me right to heaven on the spot. It would have been much less stress for him if he would have done that, I assure you. I mean, I'm sure I'm a, a probably a very high insurance casualty policy from heaven's perspective. But God didn't do that. He said, I'm going to save him, secure his eternal destiny. But also, God looked at my life. He looked at your life. And when he saved you, he also said, do you know what kind of good works we could do through her? If we save him, do, do you know what kind of... We, Oh, because of who they're connected to and who they know and their personality and their temperament and their gifts and, and God knowing all those things. He said, if I save him, we could do some really good works on the earth before he dies through him. And God's created good works for us to walk in. So every day you get up, oh, there's nothing good about my day. Yes, there is. God may have one good work for you to do that day. Lord, what's the good work you want him to do today? And God saved us for that. And here, Jesus, remember himself, said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Paul's asking that as believers would walk in these good works, he's saying, Lord, put your grace and your favor on the good works that they do, that it would be really impacting. He's saying, get the maximum impact, God, as they're doing good works. Let them be fruitful, Lord. May their labors be fruitful. May they really bless people and really help people. Lord, I pray that you'd get the greatest harvest from every good work that every Christian does. And he was just praying that as they worked, there would be great fruitful results. I think it's an important reminder for all of us that not only are we supposed to work for the Lord in doing good works, but listen, we also need to be praying that the Lord would work when we do good works. Yeah, we should be working for the Lord, but we also have to incorporate prayer in all that we do. Lord, we're going to work. But Lord, we're also praying, would you work as we work? 
Lord, would you work through us and get the greatest harvest and the maximum fruitfulness? I think a lot of ministry may see greater fruitfulness if there was more prayer saying, Lord, make the work fruitful. Make it fruitful. Lord, you work as they work and work through them to the most fruitful and greatest degree. Fourthly, we see Paul prayed as well in verse 10 as a part of spiritual maturity that he says that they would also as Christians be increasing in the knowledge of God. The word increasing is a term that means continuous and ongoing. Paul wanted to see these believers come into a deeper and fuller understanding of just who God was. He was just praying that they would know God better and better as they continued in relationship. He's not requesting per se here that they would know God's plans or God's purposes or even God's word per se for that matter. He's praying here specifically that they would get to know God himself in an experiential way to a more intimate and deeper degree. He's asking that they would come to know God through God revealing himself in a deeper way as they met with God and had experiences with God. He's not just asking that they would know about God. Nothing wrong with getting to know things about God. But it's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know God. See, there are people who know things about my wife, but I know my wife. See, there's a difference. And, and God doesn't want us just to know things about him. God's a God of revelation. He actually wants us to know him. When people start out in relationships, they, they say things like, oh, well, I'm just getting to know him. That's the idea there. God wants us to get to know him and to know him in a personal way, experientially, because he's a loving, intimate God. God wants us to get to know him in a deeper way personally. And Paul understood. And so he's asking here for an increased experience with God in a personal way that they have personal experiences with God to a deeper degree. And I think as I look at this, man, what a wonderful prayer for us to be praying for someone. Man, would to God that we would pray these kind of things for people more often to pray that people would come to know God better. Man, it's a great prayer for someone. Lord, I just pray that, that, that Lord, you would take them further and bring them to greater experiences with you. Lord, I pray that to whatever degree he knows you, that he would just know you more deeply. I just pray that whatever level she does know you, Lord, I just pray she'd increase in knowing you, not just knowledge about God, not facts, that they would know you more deeply, that they'd have a deeper experience and be taken further to a greater degree of relationship and depth. One of the most important aspects of God's will is increasing in knowing God. So we know that when we pray this way, we're praying in accordance with the heart of a prayer that God wants to answer. Paul said in Philippians 3 that I might know you and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. So what a great thing for us to be praying that people may increase in the knowledge of God. He then prayed as well, verse 11, that the believers would be strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So here he's asking, notice, that God would continually strengthen them by the power of his spirit so they have continually the, the enablement to live out their lives spiritually. The word strengthened is in the present tense. It means to repeatedly be strengthened. The idea is to continuously on an ongoing basis be experiencing empowerment on an ongoing basis to be enabled with strength. And that's important because one of the things we need to realize about the Christian experience is we cannot live the Christian life 
in the energy and strength of our own flesh. Human resolve and human strength and effort, fleshly capacity, self-resolve, we will never be able to live the way God intends with that. We need the power of the Spirit of God helping us to live in the will of God, to walk in a way that's godly and pleasing to the Lord. We need to be supernaturally empowered, notice, with His glorious power, continually, constantly, that the strength of the Lord becomes our strength to walk in the will of God in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and and walking worthy of the calling of the Lord. So for us to pray for people in this manner. It reminds me of what Paul prayed in the book of Ephesians where there he prayed that the Christians may be strengthened, he said, with power through his spirit in the inner man. What a great prayer. Because see, this is what God has offered to us anyway. When we accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit entered into our life. The spirit of the living God himself came into our being, awakened us spiritually to now. The the presence of God himself is within us, so our spirit is awakened to have an understanding and a fellowship with God. In a sense, our life began. Things were turned on spiritually. But the wonderful thing is now, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit dwells and resides. He stays within us. And he wants to keep strengthening us inwardly with the power to walk in victory over sin and to live a godly life and to serve the Lord supernaturally. And and so Paul here is praying, Lord, strengthen them. Strengthen them within. What a great thing for us to pray for one another as God's people, to pray that God would strengthen fellow Christians. And notice the reason he wanted them to be strengthened. He says in verse 11 that you'd be strengthened so that you may have patience and long-suffering with joy. He's asking that God would strengthen them so they could bear up under difficulty and be patient and endure challenging things and so that they could bear up under those things to also have long-suffering, which is a term that means to suffer long and to still have a joyful spirit while they're doing it. So Paul was praying, Lord, you need to strengthen them because I don't want them to see them grow weary in well-doing. Lord, you need to strengthen them to be able to walk in love and joy towards one another and have long-suffering in their attitudes because patiently bearing up under the weight of challenges, if you haven't noticed, it doesn't come real easy. It's not natural to bear up under hardship. We want to crumble and fall apart. So for us to pray, Lord, strengthen them. Strengthen them, Lord. As they're bearing up under this, trying to be patient, strengthen them. They can have a joyful spirit and endurance as they go through it. And as we interact with people and maybe we're mistreated by others, it's hard to have a joyful, patient attitude and be long-suffering. We need the help of the Holy Spirit for that. That the fruit of the Spirit working in our life, strengthen us, gives us the ability to have love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness. But that only comes as we're strengthened by the Lord giving us that power within. So we need to pray that God would help us to, to be strengthened in things of the Spirit. And the, the final thing Paul, Paul prays for in verse 12 through 14 is basically, in essence, that God would give them an appreciation for their salvation of their soul. Look what he says, verse 12. I pray also, he says, that you would be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's asking there that they would retain a grateful spirit, always giving thanks, basically expressing thankfulness to the Father who qualified them as Christians to now partake 
in the heavenly inheritance that all the saints are one day going to experience. And so he's saying, as sinful people, in essence, Paul's saying, as sinful people, let us never forget, he's saying to the Colossians, we could not do anything to qualify ourselves for heaven. God qualified us. He's saying as sinners, we could do nothing to make ourselves qualified or earn a right to enter into heaven. Due to our sin, Jesus said, we're destined for outer darkness, not to partake in inheritance in the light. We're destined for the torment of forever and ever and where the fire is not quenched. Yet, because God has so lovingly and graciously done what he has done for us through Jesus Christ, God qualified us. God made us right through what he did for Jesus, making available to us the opportunity to participate in heaven, to have deliverance from hell and to have access into heaven. And God is the one who has qualified us for this glorious inheritance where one day, listen, God is going to liberate us from this earth and all the darkness and the filth and the hardship and all the dark, evil things that happen on this planet. And he's going to bring us to the brilliance of perfect, pure light and the glorious holiness where there's no more sickness or suffering or death or sorrow or any dark or filthy thing ever again. And Paul says here, listen, I pray that as a Christian, he says, we should always certainly, should we not have a general attitude of thankfulness towards God? for the food on our table, the breath in our lungs. But Paul is saying here, I pray that one area we would never lose appreciation for or cease being thankful for is what Jesus said, that our names are written in the book of life. That, that God has spared us from hell and given us opportunity to go to heaven. And just in case the Colossian believers or you and I had forgotten what that means, he briefly reminds in a summary of salvation what God qualifying us means in verse 13 and 14. He says, let me explain it to you. Remember, he's delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we now have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So there's a summary of salvation right there. That's a sermon in and of itself, those two verses. But he describes what God has done to qualify us for heaven. And he said, this is what it took. First of all, a miraculous deliverance had to happen. He says, God delivered us from the power of darkness. That's what it took. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were living as slaves to the prince of the power of this air, the spirit that's working in disobedience. We have to remember as God's people today, before we were saved, we may not have consciously known it, but spiritually we were enslaved to the power of sin, to the power of Satan and the powers of darkness that were ruling over our lives. We may not have seen the shackles and may not have made sense, but spiritually, biblically, we were enslaved to sin. We were being ruled by an evil dictator, an unseen force that was enticing us to live in self-serving and sinful ways in how we live before we met Jesus Christ and were delivered. And it was God who in his mercy saw us as slaves in the power of darkness who broke into our life and delivered us from the power of darkness. A deliverance happened. God delivered us from that slavery of the power of darkness controlling your life. And if that weren't enough, he says, and then he conveyed us, verse 13, into the kingdom of the son of his love. That word convey speaks of 
being transferred from one location to another. It's a word that's used there that was a reference to how a king, by his authority, would take people from one location geographically and he would move them and go put them somewhere else geographically and, and put them in a new spot. And even the Colossians could relate to this because in that day, Antiochus the Great transported some 2,000 Jews from Babylon to Colossae. And he's saying that's exactly what happened spiritually though. The king of kings, first he delivered you from a dark, evil king and kingdom and then he transferred you and put you in a wonderful kingdom. What a wonderful thing to take into consideration. God did not only deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and then let you wander around aimlessly. Here, I set you free from that prison camp. Now go figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. No, God said, I'm going to take you now and put you into a wonderful kingdom with a loving, gracious, compassionate king, the new king of our life, Jesus, who will lead you the rest of your life as you prepare to enter his kingdom. And referring to what Jesus had to do to get us into that kingdom, he says in verse 14, what was necessary? He says, redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Those words go together. Redemption speaks of releasing a prisoner by paying a ransom price. And this is what was necessary. Ladies and gentlemen, please know, God valued your soul so much, you and I, we were hostages of the devil. We were hostages spiritually of Satan and the power of darkness. And God valued us so much that he said, I don't care what the ransom price costs, that God said, I'm willing to shed the blood of my only son to pay that ransom price so that they can be set free, so they can be liberated and be freed from that condition. It required the sacrificing of Jesus to suffer, to pour out his blood in death, and as the result of the shedding of his blood and our ransom being paid to set us free, God can now, verse 14 says, offer to us the forgiveness of sins. And the word forgiveness speaks of a canceling of a debt that is owed. And our personal sin doesn't matter if you feel you've only failed one time in your whole life or if you think you are the greatest failure not only in this room but on this planet. Everybody had a debt of sin they could not pay. And Jesus' blood paid the debt and now there is the forgiveness of sins. God can take away the punishment we deserve for our sins. He takes away the penalty and he even removes the stain. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's been washed clean. You've been made new. And you can never be enslaved or punished for those sins again. And this is the miracle of salvation that Paul is praying that as a final thing that we as God's people would have a constant appreciation for. That we wouldn't be able to stop just giving thanks for that. That even if everything else in our life, you go, man, there's nothing in my life that I can find to be thankful for right now. Well, first of all, you ought to reevaluate. I don't think that's true. But if you couldn't find anything else on the planet, that the whole rest of your life you would always have some reason to have an attitude of gratitude and to come to the house of God or to sit before God and to say, God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you delivered me from the power of darkness. My life was, was on a ruinous path, Lord. You delivered me. You changed my life, Lord. Lord, you forgave my sin. You took away all the guilt that plagued me in my soul. And oftentimes, the problem is, is you know, we see that right in a brand new convert. When you, you see a brand new saved, 
man, they, they're just so wonderful because they are so excited about these things. Oh, my sins are forgiven. The Lord delivered me. Change. And they're just so overwhelmed with gratitude. But then as we walk with Jesus, we often lose touch with that appreciation during that long journey with Jesus. And that's why I think the psalmist prayed in Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Oh, Lord, restore to me that joy of salvation. And here Paul asks, Let us never lose gratitude for that amazing salvation. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray.